0: I believe that a lot of things are within our control. I think that if we slowed down in life and worked on reconnecting human to human and supporting one another um, over like consumerism, I think that we just heal a lot of problems that people are having mostly behind closed doors.
1: to the Maximum Enthusiasm Podcast, the exploration of life fully
0: optimized with Megan Hotman.
1: A maximum Enthusiasm podcast listeners. Welcome back. This episode is brought to you by my friends over at Relish Studio. Check them out on the web at relishstudio.com. They are a digital marketing firm devoted to purpose driven business leaders. And their goal is to guide and support their customers as they realize the full potential of marketing to fuel both business and personal growth. Speaking from personal experience, I have worked with Relish on websites, logo design, and in fact, the editing of this very podcast. I can't say enough about them, and my friend Stu is just a wonderful human. He is totally in alignment in terms of environment and sustainability, two things I'm very passionate about, and in fact, their entire business is a 1% for the planet partner, which means they're giving back a percentage of their revenue to environmental causes and organizations. I just love these guys. I can't say enough about them. If you decide to check them out and you want to hire them for a new job, make sure you mention the Maximum Enthusiasm podcast to them and they will offer you a 10% discount off of their normal rate on their first engagement with you. Check them out, relishstudio.com. Hey, Maximum Enthusiasm listeners. Welcome back. Today's episode interview occurred on March 15th, and my guest today is Adelaide Pear, author of a new book called De-Gloved, Every Scar Has a Story. I had occasion to meet Adelaide at various bike advocacy events over the last few years and have known that she was working on a book for quite some time. So when the book hit the shelves last fall, I definitely added this one to my shopping cart and just recently finished the book In time for us to do our interview today. And we actually talk very little about the book itself. I obviously don't want to spoil anything in it for the readers. I highly encourage you to pick up a a copy and read it for yourselves. Instead, we talk more about the ways that Adelaide has embraced her life um, post the significant and traumatic event and the things that really fire her up and fuel her Um, One topic that we touched on in her interview that I just feel is in my daily swirl lately is that of being vulnerable. Um, She is very open and shares um, very openly and candidly in her book. And she talks about how that vulnerability has really teed up opportunities for people to then share things with her that she doesn't think that they probably share necessarily um, with just every person and really her authenticity and candor in the story is something that i feel like we all could really benefit from more in our lives just being willing to have the courage to share more openly rather than just showing the superficial put together orderly uh, version of ourselves and of our lives And occasionally letting people see our hot mess or even just letting them see us in our more authentic state, it does lend itself to far more um, really deep connections between people. And I think especially after the pandemic has kept us all so sequestered from one another as we start to come out of it and start to reengage with our, our other humans and our communities Uh, reading her book and talking to her and just in my sort of day-to-day life, I just want to encourage us all to be willing to be more open and have more vulnerable conversations with the people in our lives and see where some of that new sharing may really lend itself to some depth and to some deeper connection. Um, As we start to refill our own personal buckets with, um, time with loved ones that we've perhaps not seen for a while, it's just a good reminder that we we can scratch the surface and talk about the superficial stuff, but then I would just encourage us all to go deep. And Adelaide really leads by example with her um, really intimate sharing of her life and her uh, events and recovery following the collision that happened in late 2014. In my own uh, personal life lately, I did just... Finish a three-day mountain bike stage race. It's something I've never done before. It included an enduro stage, which is where you race downhill segments, um, which if you know me at all or know the type of cyclist or, or sort of my background, you would know that that type of thing is absolutely terrifying to me. And of course, there were a million ways that I tried to talk myself out of it and give myself every excuse. And no one would have known or cared if I raced or didn't race. And it was rainy and it was cold. And I had some work stress and some other stress and things were really weighing heavily on my mind. And I had every reason in the book not to go out and do it and and yet there was something inside of me that said that I just really wanted to honor the commitment that I had made to myself last year in 2020 when I, when I fully said I want to get better at this thing called mountain biking. made the investment in the bike, and I had driven it out here to do this race. And so I basically took it a day at a time, and I was almost last on the first day. I was sixth out of seven. On the second day, I was dead last by a long shot. Uh, First place put over an hour into me out there on the 40 mile course. I mean, I got my ass cleanly handed to me and I still never really lost like my enthusiasm for being there. I wasn't getting down on myself. I was actually just really encouraged by the fact that I wanted to stay. And so I lined up Sunday morning with a big lump in my throat, really nervous about the downhill segments and it all went fine. And I ended up fifth overall for the weekend, basically five uh, women raced, and I was fifth. It's been a long time since I've been dead last in an event that involves a bicycle, and it was super enjoyable, and I wouldn't take it back for anything. And more importantly, and most importantly, I'll just say that reflecting on where we were and where I was a year ago, the gratitude that I felt when they played the national anthem at the start line on Friday, um, it really choked up. um, It caused some emotion to well up in me for sure. Just thinking that a year ago, I didn't know when we would ever be able to buy Grace or when I'd be able to see the cycling community again in person. And so it just felt like a huge gift to be out there all weekend, despite the cold and the rain and despite my poor performance. It was really, really nice to be back out in the competitive um, space and to kind of have that motivation reignited in me And we talk about that during Adelaide's interview as well. She did a self-timed, self-paced race effort over her weekend as well, since many events are still doing social distancing. So they're doing virtual events where people can go out and do the event on their own. And um, in many ways, I would say that is significantly harder because when there are no other racers, when the course is not marked, when you don't have spectators, when there's just no stimulus um, it can be much harder in some ways to self-motivate, but she crushed it, and we talk about that too. And I think I think honestly, these days, just getting off the couch and getting out and moving and doing the things that we're doing is that's the win. And trying new things, and being willing to be a newbie again and be a beginner is really where my headspace is at lately, just sort of the consummate learner um, headspace. So if you're um, doing some shopping in your local bookstore, definitely add the book D-Gloved, Every Scar Has a Story by Adelaide Pear to your shopping cart. And um, I hope you enjoy this interview today. I think we um, took it a different direction than perhaps other podcasts that Adelaide has been on, and that was truly my intention. And I just want to thank her for her time and for her um, tenacity and perseverance in getting her story published. I just have so much respect and admiration for people who get a book all the way out into the world. And it definitely remains on my list of aspirations. So mad respect to Adelaide for making that happen. And just want to say thanks again for tuning in. Uh, Welcome back again for another week of the Maximum Enthusiasm podcast. Have a great day. Well, today's guest joining us here on the Maximum Enthusiasm podcast is, I believe, the exemplary, most powerful example of perseverance, uh, Adelaide Pear. Thank you so much for joining us on the show.
0: Yeah, thank
1: you. I just recently read your book, De-Gloved, Every Scar Has a Story. And for those listening, I highly recommend that you pick up a copy of this book. And, um, Adelaide, can you tell us the best place to pick up a copy?
0: Um, your local bookstore, even if they don't have it in store, they should be able to order it. And that way you're supporting local and, um, yeah. Cool. My recommendation.
1: We won't dig in too much in the book or my intention isn't to to do that because you've written the book. And I think it's a, a read that's well worth everyone's time to. To go through it page by page, so I don't want to um, do too many spoiler alert. Well, we'll just say it's a spoiler alert, but I don't want to spoil too much of the book by, by hashing it out on the podcast. But there's just a couple really big takeaways for me, at least from the book that I feel made you a perfect guest for this podcast, where we really do try to, you know, as its name says, maximum enthusiasm, like how do you live a life with purpose and with tenacity and overcoming hard things? Um, You are one of several guests we have hosted who has endured and survived a near-death experience in their lives. And I always find there's some significance and some really big magic that comes from those moments. And I'm curious, this is, um, the collision happened back in late 2014. We're now in March of 2021. You know, broad sweeping strokes here, but how would you say that, having a a near-death experience has changed you? Like, what is the Adelaide 2.0? What does she stand for? And what does she look forward to? And what are the, you know, what are the things that really stick with you about the way you do life now?
0: Oh, that's a good question. I mean, I think during the recovery period, which I discuss in the book as being Way more than just the physical recovery, but just the yeah. emotional recovery. In some ways, I felt um, like it was hard to plan into the future, to think long-term. I kind of had – there. there was a little bit of that trauma, fear-based kind of thinking that I think permeated part of my life, but now I just – get a lot of excitement from the little things and the mundane going right in life. And, um, I try not to take much of those experiences for granted. Um, knowing that, you know, whether it's a big event like my crash or even just smaller injuries that I've had since, like, you know, you have a really good run or a really good ride or something really good happens in life. And you just try and hold on to it a little bit, knowing that that's not a guarantee in (laughs) in the future.
1: So that's a great answer. Um, Would you say in general, then you've become a lot more present with the way you do life than you were before this big experience?
0: Present and also aware of how my interactions impact other people too. Yeah.
1: Tell me more about what you mean by that. Just small ways we can uplift each other.
0: Yeah. Just how interconnected we are. Just how, um, just realizing that you don't often see what's going on behind closed doors for other people. And I think since my openness about my crash, I've had, more conversations with people who have been willing to share some details about what's going on in their life that's a hardship or a struggle that they might not actually share with the population in general, but they have like this trust with me because I've been through something that they open up and share something pretty vulnerable. And so it's given me this appreciation that like, we all have stuff going on. It's hard yeah. to make it to adulthood without having something go on in your life. Um, and it just gives me appreciation for like how, even if someone comes across as doing pretty good during the day or, you know, you they might have something that you don't know about that's going on at home or, or that they're struggling with and saying something nice or just trying to be understanding is, it can go a long way. There's so much gold in that. And I would love to
1: peel that back a little bit more if you're willing, because I think this is especially coming out of 2020. And when we've just been lacking human connection, what came up for me just then as you were talking was sort of the realization just hit me that because you were so vulnerable and you so openly shared in your book, which I thought was what made it such a beautiful story and such a compelling read. I bet you've been really surprised by how many people have been immensely vulnerable with you in return. And perhaps even at times that maybe can become a bit overwhelming. Um, Had you ever experienced something like that in life prior to writing the book? Or is this sort of like a whole new way of you doing life now where you're just wide open and in exchange people are really wide open with you?
0: I don't think it happened necessarily with the book coming Out, but it happened in the years where I started to, before the book was even out, I was writing blogs or just testing the waters by telling my story verbally with people. Or because I had been through the crash and saw the support I got for a physical injury, all of a sudden it made me realize that if I wanted support for bipolar, which I um, have a diagnosis of bipolar too, if I wanted support for that, the only way I was going to get it is if I told people I had bipolar too, like right. you can't get support for something you don't even acknowledge Ooh. in with people. So I kind of, after my crush, I started testing the waters by telling more people and sharing more stories. And, um, yeah, it does create this open path. And sometimes people share stuff with me where I, the best I can do is be like, I will try to understand. I'll try to empathize, but like, what you're going through actually sounds really hard and something I can't even imagine. And, and I know to some people, that's how my story feels. Um, and so sometimes I, sometimes I'm like, Oh, whoa, that that sounds really scary or really hard. And sometimes I feel like I know how to support the person and sometimes I don't. Um, but the best thing you can do is just like, listen, I had one friend, who said something like, I'm just going to hold space for you Mm -hmm. um, in a situation. Mm -hmm. And so I I like that saying, because I think that's sometimes the best we can do for other people. Yeah, totally. (laughs) Totally. And I feel like a
1: lot of our circles or just people in general are doing life, struggling through hard things on their own, because it is so scary to be vulnerable and to, really openly share what you're going through. And I feel like in a way we miss out on the most beautiful parts of humanity when we are closed off to letting other people see us be hot messes. And, um, and it sounds like you've really been the beneficiary of some of the very well-deserved like love and just affection and support that you obviously needed and, and it's benefited you. And now what I hear you saying is you're really able to pour that back into other people when they're Willing to be vulnerable with you, which is a really—it's a really cool thing. That's a really cool byproduct of a really awful event, um, and it sounds like it's changed you a little bit. That it's shaping your life in a slightly different way than maybe before. Yes. The the vulnerability piece, uh, not the yes, yeah, yeah. Um, so much about that I want to dig into, but I also really wanted to talk about your exciting latest adventure. So maybe I'll maybe I'll circle back to some of that. Um. Because I do truly believe that's the way that we do life the best and the most meaningful way is that we are as open as you have been in your story and in your book. But speaking of tenacity and perseverance, I mean, let's talk about the book itself. So The Collision happened back in late 2014. I know you were blogging fairly shortly thereafter. And then I was following you online and and following your um, endeavor to get the, the book itself published. Do you mind sharing a little bit about that journey? I mean, I know that's not an easy undertaking. And and yet here it is on my table, which is really
0: incredible. It's so cool that it's on your table. Um, <laughs> it and, really is. It really is. Um, I actually have been thinking a lot about that and just in terms of what success feels like for the book and hearing some other people's stories about how their book came out and just understanding the book process a little bit better because I have a degree in civil engineering. I have a master's in education, so I do not have a background that um, led me into writing naturally the way some people might. Um, And... It's just plain scary to put a book out there. But I also, I'm a really avid reader. And so it was super important to me that my story was told in a captivating enough way. Like I needed it to be well written because I wanted it to be something that I wanted to read as a reader, I guess. Sure. And that was a really high bar for me because I had a long way to go just in learning about how to write well. (laughs) And so part of it was just like the first, I don't know, seven or eight months was just getting all these stories out on paper pretty early. And then, and then I went and worked with a writing coach who just helped me talk through themes and keeping continuity from chapter to Mm -hmm. chapter and offering um, a lot of advice as I went. And then, of course, as I was editing, things were still happening in my life where had I gone and published it the first seven months after writing Draft One, it wouldn't have been the same book because, because it actually covered most of the time that I was writing and editing. It ended up six years later, a lot of what had happened five years after the crash was, In the book, because it was part of the recovery journey, which was interesting. Um, And I'm not somebody who likes long term projects. It was really hard to just stay motivated. Um, But it was also interesting because I wanted to be out and riding my bike. And when I was working on the book, it was hard to be out riding on the roads. And so I would kind of, I had this cyclical pattern of like, not working on it during the triathlon season and then picking up in the fall and getting really excited about working on it when I could work on it and it was snowing outside anyway. Um, But eventually um, I went through the literary agent process and then um, found this, this small publishing company out of the UK that I'm really happy to be working with.
1: Okay. So the book took a few years to compile and it makes total sense that it would feel a lot more interesting to work on in the off season. Um, what was the process of finding a publisher to take the story and run with it? Was that a fairly straightforward process or was that an endurance sport in and of itself?
0: It was a learning process. I had to learn about writing query letters and what's expected to put together, you know, a proposal for a literary agent, and then the literary agent typically finds a publisher. But memoirs are extremely tricky to get published, especially if they aren't a name that people recognize. And um, I actually am just kind of figuring that out from hearing somebody else's story who had previously had several books published by a publisher and went to publish more of a memoir type book and, and ended up self-publishing. So I did what is um, the UK publisher that I ended up working with is, I guess it's like self-published hybrid published. They definitely helped put together a lot of the final product, which was awesome. Um, they did the book cover and helped in a lot of ways to get it ready, but then it was on me to market it and put it out there and everything else, which was fine. And it, it worked really well. And they've been a great company, but I ended up not going after reaching out to numerous literary agents, I ended up not going that route just because I think it was too, I'm too small of a deal, (laughs) especially in the memoir field. Okay. Yeah. Okay.
1: And but, um based on the inside page where it shows the date, the book hit the shelves in early 2020, correct?
0: Um yeah, yeah 2020 would be last year. Um I'm like, what day is it? Uh it you know. <laughs> know it's really confusing. It the publishing date was um October 18th, 2020, which was exactly six years from the crash. So that was also the cool thing that the Publishing company was willing to work with me to make sure that happened. Sorry, 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 sorry. Um, That's okay. On On the date. Yes, on, on the date of the actual crash. So that was really, that was personally satisfying. I bet. And you made a comment
1: earlier. You said, you know, what does success look like to me with this book? So now that you are, you know, roughly, let's just say six months into the book being out in the wild and people reading it. um, Have you given more thought to what success feels like to you as a now published author with this book?
0: Yes, to me, it's when somebody comes back and writes a review or gives me a comment that hits like, I have probably five or six things that I wanted to hit with the book. I wanted it to be, like I discussed, I wanted it to be something that was well-written because I wanted it to read well, I guess. So um, m- like my cousin's boyfriend who I had never met, but talked on the phone with a few weeks ago said that he read it in a day. And I was like, oh my gosh, that's just the best compliment that you were able to totally. get through in a day. Um, or that I like when people tell me that, um, you know, if I talk about my bipolar too. So if somebody says that it um, was relatable in the mental health aspect or just had somebody who uh, was in a crash earlier this year who wrote me and said that they were reading the book and nodding along and crying, and um, mm. that that means that I I touched on some of the universal points of going through a crash, not just mine. Things like that. Those are totally. the moments where I feel like I succeeded.
1: Well, I definitely second the feedback that you're getting about it being well-written and the themes that you weave in. I have really appreciated how you are telling the story in sort of chronological order, but then you'll pop back in time and fill the reader in on on some context with some you know previous experiences and events. And then you come back into sort of present time and present tense, and it just flows really well. And I also love that you weaved in perspectives from other people involved in your life. And I um, I consistently was thinking just how wonderful it was that you really kept acknowledging and honoring, you know, the suffering of your partner, um, Kenneth. I just think that's so special. It just speaks volumes to the partnership that you two have that, um, you know, he, you, you told his story right alongside yours, which I thought was really, really powerful. And I think that resonates for a lot of people who themselves perhaps have not been involved in a catastrophic event, but are the family or the loved one of someone who has, and often their suffering is um, untold and unacknowledged. And so I thought that was really a poignant part of the book. Um, Again, can't recommend it enough. Um, Learned a lot about bipolar too. Also, again, just really appreciated your open and honest sharing of that. And I suspect you've helped a lot of people Um, navigate some of the things that they're struggling with if they perhaps didn't know that um, maybe some of those things that they were feeling or some of those roller coasters that they were riding were in fact part of the diagnosis that you were sharing. Have you had people come to you and say like this really
0: helped me figure out what I'm dealing with? Um, Most of the people I guess who I've talked to have just acknowledged that they also have bipolar 2 which again they were sharing it with me And at least a few of them, I know that was not something that they would necessarily share with everyone, but it was this understanding that I, I had it too. So I wasn't going to judge. But then I think the PTSD element was helpful for some people because I've had some people come back and be like, oh, maybe this event that happened to me earlier, maybe I didn't process it well. Mm. Maybe I'm Experiencing some of those things, which I talk about in the book, I didn't acknowledge my PTSD initially either. So it makes sense. You just we have this very like thin perspective of what PTSD is. Like I feel like the experience of PTSD is not well discussed, um, where people understand it when they experience it themselves.
1: I totally agree. And especially in the context of um, situations and injuries like yours, and and the ones that you and I see so frequently in in bike crash scenarios, we focus so heavily on sort of the orthopedic and um, you know obvious physical um, injuries that we we tend to brush that aside. And then, as you reflected in your book, and as I've observed, and I'm sure you have it, it creeps back up on a person until it's resolved yeah. and dealt with. And it comes up in really interesting ways. You know, many cyclists who are hit by cars then suddenly find that they have a hard time driving their car, which, which you yeah. shared in the book. And so I think that was also a really powerful message that um, I hope as people read your book, they take that to heart and they allow themselves the time and the opportunity to process the PTSD and they avail themselves of, um, you know, professional intervention on that front, because it's just as important as the, you know, orthopedic surgeon or what have you. Um, one of the things I really appreciated from your book, and I think this is a huge takeaway for everyone, especially as we're coming out of the pandemic. And when we just talk about setting ourselves up for the opportunity to live a life where we thrive and of maximum enthusiasm, if you will, is you talk about certain, um, what I would say are like guardrails for yourself. There are things that, you know, you can consistently do for yourself if you're having a bad day, whether it's bipolar 2 bringing you down, whether it's just simply pain and and the difficult recovery, whether it's just, you know, you had a bad run or you had a bad ride, you have these really consistent practices of self-care that you'll do for yourself. And I love that because you were able to articulate them. Um, so is there advice you would give people generally that, um, you know, as people sit there and say, oh, I'm I'm spiraling for whatever reason, I'm having a really bad day and I just can't get myself kind of back on track. How did you come to discover the things that work for you? And then how are you able to actually implement them in the moment? Cause you know, that can be just as hard.
0: Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I think the sports I came to at a young age. And so I, I, probably in college started to realize or shortly thereafter <laughs> that I always felt better after working out and I felt my strongest when working out. And so, you know, when things are going along pretty well, that's a really good <laughs> athletics is just always going to be an important piece of keeping me sane and healthy. Um, nutrition, I came about <laughs> before before I was diagnosed with bipolar two, but I it was really a psychiatrist who helped me understand like what alcohol does to the brain, mm. what like what happens when I spike my blood sugar too much and what the consequences can be. And just kind of helped me see that. And I worked with a nutritionist for a while. Um what other I I know I have lot and then I have like lots of little tricks up my sleeve, if you will. Like exactly, oh, I'm exactly. Going really badly, but I'm just gonna sit here and like do a puzzle because I'm just gonna because a puzzle just occupies your brain in a way that you can't spin out the same um with thoughts because you're like looking for the next puzzle piece. So I think just as much as I can just pause, hit the pause button, or also put myself in a situation where I'm not having to make a ton of decisions, I really like just sitting with other people if I'm not doing well. I shouldn't say mm. people, because people's overwhelming. People is too many. Person. Uh-huh. <laughs> it's it's good when you're not doing well to have a person that understands that you're not doing well. So they don't expect much of you. Um but they can kind of just take some of the load off. Um, they don't have to really do anything, just be there, I think, is part of it. So I, I guess I just came through those by trial and error. I wasn't diagnosed for several years when I did have bipolar, and so it developed some good coping mechanisms just, out of trying to continue on with life while having it and then mm-hmm. I felt some bad coping mechanisms that I had to kind of unlearn um but I try and just put as many pauses in where I give myself uh, more more chance to succeed too like if you fail it's like it's okay it's just like it's about just um I used to I should say this. I used to like, feel like, well, tomorrow might be better. And now it's more like, okay, what in the next five minutes can I do? Cause we can reset. Ah. I can hit the reset now. It doesn't have to be next week. It doesn't have to be Monday. It doesn't have to be tomorrow. Like I'm doing really poorly right now, but I could theoretically reset in five minutes. If I just give myself five minutes to just be where I'm at and I've gotten quicker at like resetting too.
1: Oh, that's such powerful advice. Oh my gosh. Um, where does that self-awareness come from? Because I think that's a really powerful tool that you have to be able to see that for yourself, especially when you're like in it, you know, what advice would you give people to? I mean, it sounds like you gave yourself permission to be curious about yourself and you were almost, you know, Oh, there's that thing I do again. Okay. Now wait, why am I doing that? Uh, But you took it a step further and you said, no, this is not going to derail my day or my hour or my week. Um, That's super powerful. Like that's not within most people's capabilities to to square themselves back inside those guardrails. So how do you, like, where does that come from? Is that just your tenacity at your core?
0: I don't know. I don't know where that comes from exactly. I think and we can talk about this with regards to my weekend this weekend. But I think some of Perfect. it comes as sports as well. Okay. Because when you do endurance events, you start to like realize that like things can turn around pretty quickly. You can be doing really bad one minute and then really great 10 minutes later if you like have a caffeine gel or something. Mm-hmm. But just that like temporariness of emotions and being able to like feel them and roll through them and then let them go quickly. um, Wow. I think you get a lot of practice in sports from that. That's the best I can come up with for why I focus so much on my internal compass, I guess.
1: I really like how you just said that and that temporariness of emotions and sort of riding. It's almost like you describe you're riding the wave and you have an awareness of it whether it's during an athletic event, whether you're having a bad day, whether it's bipolar two, whether it was a a rough recovery day post crash. It sounds to me like you have a willingness to kind of sit in stuff when it sucks instead of what I think many of us do is try to rush through it because it's so uncomfortable. And I also hear you saying that it's not going to completely ruin your day, week, month, whatever. Um, which is a really powerful example, um, and especially coming out of the pandemic, I think we can all learn so much from that, where we have felt anxious or afraid or at times completely powerless um, to sort of sit in the stuff that's uncomfortable and do the things for ourselves that we know can give us, as you said, the best chance for success, the best chance to thrive, and um, so I just, I just want to compliment you on what a really positive and powerful example that is, because I think a lot of us are just prone to being um, subject to the things that come at us and then letting it completely knock us off our game, which can be unfortunate. You know, you can lose a lot of your life getting knocked around and not really doing much for yourself to stand back up. So I think that's really neat. Yeah. Um, So let's talk about what you did this weekend to test that (laughs) that emotional um, temporariness of emotions, as you said. Tell us about these pretty epic undertakings.
0: So I'm in Tucson for the winter, and we have a friend here who talked about signing up for the Mid-South Gravel Race, which is in Oklahoma, and I guess I found a different gravel race that I'm going to do in September, October this year. I don't even know when. I don't remember the name, but I'm excited for it. And so my friend also mentioned that he was doing this race in March. And I was like, count me in. We could drive up together knowing that there was a chance it would get um, pushed to virtual because of COVID and also being completely okay with that because um, we've been pretty like cooped up, not cooped up, but um, we've, we've been very careful with COVID. So like, I don't really want to travel if it's not safe anyway. Sure. Um, so part of me was just happy that it was virtual to begin with. It just took away some of the, the extra stress of, of traveling during yeah. the time. And I don't really want to. So anyway, it was, but then, so it was a hundred mile bike ride, but then they also had this 50 mile run. And so <laughs> we signed up for both. <laughs> That's and, awesome. um, and I've done, I have a lot of background, actually, before I got more serious into cycling or triathlon. I, my, my sister uh, was doing ultra-marathons several years ago, and so I kind of followed suit and did some with her. So I have a fair bit of experience with, like, the marathon to 50K and even 150 mile or distance. Um, so we did that on Friday, and it was interesting because it was the best-executed Um, endurance run I had done, which like I said, I've done several. And um, I think that's the fun thing about doing these is there's so much to learn each time. And this time I nailed my pacing and I nailed my nutrition. And so it was actually spectacular, but then Saturday we were going to do the ride. We had all weekend to do both. And so Saturday we were going to do the ride and it um, snowed and rained even as far down south as we are. Um, there was snow up in the foothills where we were going to be riding. So we pushed it to yesterday, to Sunday. and I started out that ride and 100 miles on a mountain bike. I realized this is only my second time doing that big of a ride on a mountain bike, which is way uh-huh. different than doing it on a road bike, uh-huh. um, and I'm glad I did the first really long ride on my mountain bike a few weeks ago. And I'm really glad I just had the done that because it gave me just the confidence, like, okay, I like, I know I can do it, um, which was good because I started out yesterday so tired, just oh, so tired at the start that it was a long day. (laughs) But the good news is that I really like riding my bike and we were in a very pretty location. It was in Patagonia, Arizona, really close to the border. We got up to the top of this hill and all of a sudden you could just see it. I mean, it was desolate, like no cell phone service, just gravel roads, real quiet. Um, But we got to the top of this hill and you were like, there's Mexico. Like those hills are, those are Mexico. Um, and that was just really cool, really cool. Um, and it turns out that caffeine helps stop tears of exhaustion. (laughs) Uh, so tired. It wasn't even like I was there, there was no real emotion with the tears. I just kind of started crying because I just like, couldn't focus. And, um, caffeine turned that around and it was just at one point there was wind and I just crumple in the wind sometime all the time. I, I just crumple in the wind. And so I was trying my hardest. At one point I just turned my bike around and went a half mile downhill the other way, just to have a tailwind downhill. And then I turned around and kept going. That's a good <laughs> like, idea. It's just like, I, I just need to, I was like, I can't think the wind just keeps hitting my ears and I just can't hear myself think. I was like, I don't know what kind of thoughts I'm having anyway, but I just need a minute. So I flipped it. And, um, but there's so many little, like, there again, there's so many emotions that you go through. And it took me, like, well over eight hours to do this. And the last hour, which um, in the last hour when you're in the Coast Guard standing duty, we used to call it the power hour. But um, oh. the hour of power. And the hour of power yesterday, I was actually in a really great mood. And it was beautiful. And I was super happy. So it ended like the last hour was the best hour, but I had to go through those first seven hours to get that last hour. You know? so That's an impressive
1: that- story of turning the day
0: around. Yeah. It was, it was rough, <laughs> but, but super fun. And do you think part of the
1: fatigue was from the 50-mile run, which was on, what, Friday?
0: Yeah. The 50 K, which is like 31 miles running that took, um, a, like four a little over, I think it was like four hours and 20 minutes up thereabouts. And so, yeah, it was just fatigue from that. Whoa, girl, you were hauling. You did 30 miles in four and a half hours. Yeah. Wow. It was, it was pretty like flat terrain except for the last tiny bit. But, yeah, but still um, that's fast. I don't care what your terrain is. That's amazing. it was, it was The fastest I probably could, it was very well executed. And that, yeah, that was the problem. It was like, if I was going to have a good day with that, I was going to suffer on the bike. There's just (laughs) no way around it, I don't think. And you did suffer
1: and anyone wouldn't have blamed you if you had thrown in the towel in the first hour. And instead you finished, you persevered and you finished, which is really... I'm gathering more and more, you know, part of the Adelaide pair story in general. I mean, is that how, how you've always been?
0: Um, I have always been somebody that s- sets my sights on a goal and yeah, it goes after it and it's not always the same goal cause that would be boring mm-hmm. and it's often something that's new to me and that's part of the fun is not quite knowing what to expect. Even writing a book, I'd never written a book before. There was no reason I should write a book. And that was like an interesting adventure for me.
1: Well, and as someone who has a pipe dream of writing a book and I've dabbled and, you know, talk about it and all the things, um, people like you who actually execute on on that plan Um I just have so much respect for because it's really easy to say you're gonna write a book and it's very difficult to actually sit down and do the work and then, and then really the third step of getting it published, which is super impressive. Um, you know, Is there any advice you would give to someone who has on their heart to write a book? And, and I'll just say, my coach recently said to me, the only difference between people who are published authors and those who aren't are that those who are published authors just took the time to write the damn thing. Um, you know, any of us have the capacity to be a published author, but so few of us actually do it, which is what makes it such an impressive feat. So, um, you know, whether it's writing a book or something else, you know, is there any advice you have for people to do the thing um, instead of just talking about it?
0: um, For the book piece, I guess, It's really interesting because I like amnesia about who I was and what I was thinking when I decided to start that. Except that I had this grand thought that like maybe it would be in a Starbucks one day because I also like drinking coffee and love coffee shops. And I was like, wouldn't that be amazing? Um which is also like a very bipolar thing to do, to be like, I'm going to sell millions of copies. And that's like that's when I choose these goals and get these creative ideas is when I'm like a little bit more confident and it normally comes with hypomania. But I would say the book piece I think worked because I knew I I was telling people all these stories that were in the book just in person, just talking to friends. I was just there were things that I wanted to share so much that I was sharing them anyway. And that made it easier to write. Um, So I think part of it is just having something that is exciting to tell. Um, And when it's exciting to tell, then it also, I mean, I can think of books that I've read where I'm like, wow, that was an exciting book because it was exciting to read. And, and I think about, it probably was exciting to write as well. Um, mm-hmm. And just going with the flow. I know there's a lot of advice to like sit down and write an hour every morning and do it like at a specific time and have a, a ritual or a habit and just sit down and do the work. But I think there's also something to be said for just, if you can with your schedule, just, when creativity hits, you sit down and you write. <laughs> and that's kind of how I worked was I listened to like when my energy was there for writing and the inspiration was there, then I went all in and worked on it. And some days that meant eight hours of working on my book. Um, and I guess I had the the luxury of doing that. But um, being willing to put aside other things when you have like the, the inspiration. I think that's really good advice
1: to ride the wave when it hits you. And then almost, I mean, the inverse is what you're saying is give yourself the space and the grace when you don't have the creative juices flowing and step away
0: from it. Um, yes, you said it even more concisely than I did riding the wave, knowing when some days you got to know when your heart's in doing laundry and doing dishes and making the house clean. And some days your heart's in creativity and writing or doing some other project and letting all the house chores go. Like you got to know which day it and is. And it can be both. Yeah. For sure. Some days, For Sure. Yeah. That's,
1: that makes total sense. And, um, Having done this huge thing of writing a book, which I just think is such an incredible accomplishment, I just can't congratulate you enough on that because that's just such a, such a tremendous thing to do and see it through to completion and have it out in the world and, and have it touching people like me who get to read the story in its, in its entirety having done that big thing, you know, what's really got you fired up and turned on now? Like what are the new challenges and things ahead or what, maybe it's not even a new challenge. Maybe it's just, as you said earlier, some of the the smaller things in life that bring you a lot of joy. Like what really lights you up these days?
0: Um, I'm a little bit nervous because I don't have that thing yet. Um, and there will be, another thing <laughs> that I set my eyes on and go after and it's very odd for me to be sitting in a space without that um I think my husband Kenneth probably enjoys it because sometimes I go off the rails a little bit when I get a thing and I get all excited about it and I want to go after it um I think my heart will stay I've I try and also think just instead of jumping ship to new things, I also want to stay consistent um, a little bit more in my life. And I've been substitute teaching. I've been, you know, with my book and, and before and beyond, I want to continue with cycling advocacy and just doing my best to think about ways I can Um, contribute and give back to my community and to other people. Um, But I don't know what the next thing is. So we're sticking with the small things for now, which is maybe why I'm on such a high in excitement from this weekend, because it was this small blip of an accomplishment.
1: Sometimes those truly are the biggest wins, aren't they? I mean, you were out doing this event, two significant undertakings with the run and the ride. There's no spectators. There's no other competitors to be watching like they would be, you know, in a in a normal race where we're all lined up together. And yet it sounds like it almost filled you up as much as, if not more, than some of the more typical traditions you've historically done. I mean, is that a fair statement? That's what it sounds like.
0: Yeah. And that's definitely what I'm going for is just to push my limits and I think that just built mental strengths and, and ex- I ha- always have mini goals athletically. So it's fun to see those through. Um, it gives you a sense of independence and there's a lot of, a lot of joy that can come from that. Totally.
1: Those small victories. Um, and mm-hmm. those are two tremendously significant victories that you celebrated this weekend. Um, and they're almost kind of private victories in a way because they were, you know, as we've said, they were on your own. And I think it's easy to suffer when you're surrounded by other athletes or when you have spectators or when you have an announcer, but it's, it's a lot harder to go out and suffer the way that you did on your own.
0: The last few miles yesterday, Kenneth was following me in the car (laughs) because it was getting dark and he had ridden a lot of the day with me, but in the last few miles, he was in the car and I hit like a hundred miles. I just like, Pointed for where he could pull over the car. <laughs> and then he just put the bike on the rack and got in and started eating sweet potato chips. And I was like, I've been looking forward to these sweet potato chips for <laughs> a few hours now. This is great. <laughs> it also, we were discussing this. It also makes it, um, I think a lot of athletes, we go out and we do these really tough things because then when you're sitting on the couch and watching TV or doing whatever you do to relax, you like, you can appreciate it in a way that, um, you're like, you just can't appreciate it. Like it's not enjoyable to sit and watch TV for eight hours straight during the day. But like, if you went out and did something crazy and then you come home and you're like, I am just sitting here and staring at the TV for a few minutes, it's like earned and it feels uh, really good. Yeah. You can like enjoy the rest. It's like we go out and we do all this activities so that when we rest, we can appreciate what it feels like to its full capacity. I completely
1: agree with that. And I can relate. I had a big weekend myself in a, um, a three-day mountain by grace, which I've never done before. And so I'm feeling that sort of Monday euphoria.
0: That. Sorry. Which, which can you tell me just what you, can you tell us what you did? I want to oh, hear Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, the race was called the Cactus Cup, and
1: it was a three-day mountain bike race in, in Arizona. And um, it was a uh, five-and-a-half-mile mountain bike time trial on Friday, a 40-mile um, mountain bike um, sort of cross-country on Saturday, and then an enduro style where you race the downhill segments um, yesterday. And as someone who's new to mountain biking, it was all pretty terrifying and certainly the enduro day had me freaked out even though Arizona enduro is significantly different than like Front Range Colorado or even you know other areas of Arizona enduro Um, it was enduro light for sure but um, just you know after after doing that for three days I'm in kind of the same space you are where um, there's that Monday euphoria and something about events like what we've just done um, quiets the monkey mind in a way that I haven't found I can replicate any other way, and to your point, it does make the recovery and the rest just something you can truly savor. Um, so I completely relate to what you're saying about that, and it just feels well earned, like you said. And it's um, it's like the the payback or the payday for the efforts that we put in. So it's a really nice it's a really nice having both having both in life.
0: Yeah. Anyways. Yeah. So true.
1: So, so 2021's on, on tap ahead. You are, um, you, you hold a professional triathlon license, right?
0: Um, I did. I'm not going to continue with that at the moment. Okay. So running mountain bike riding
1: sounds like maybe some gravel ridings in your future, just trying a whole lot of different things. Um, you have a fairly full season if COVID permits, or are you just sort of taking it as it comes?
0: I'm just taking it as it comes. Good for you. Yeah, What happens. (laughs) Good for
1: you. And you alluded earlier that you guys are wintering in Tucson, and I feel like I saw somewhere on one of your Instagram posts that, or maybe it was something that Kenneth had posted, but that this had been really a dream and a plan of, of both of yours for some time. And you were really fully executing on it this winter. And and how does that feel to make a dream like that reality?
0: Yeah, it's kind of weird because we have, we've come here for, since before my crash, since probably 2000, let's see, since May 2013, we've come here pretty much every year. And every year we leave like two weeks later and we're like, oh my gosh, next year we have to figure out how to be there longer. Uh-huh. And to know that we have a place to call home here. And it has given us so much of an opportunity to explore beyond just the few roads and runs and trails that we knew from short-term travel here. And there's just so much to explore for us. Um, And it's funny because it's one of those goals that I've, we talked about for a really long time and it did happen. And it, it's actually, we talk about like athletic goals or the book or something along those lines. This was a really big goal for a long time. So to have it um, come to fruition, I have to remind myself that this was not just like a house purchase. This was a big dream that we had talked a lot about and made it happen. And sometimes that's what you have to do. You just have to, there's a lot of goals that I think people see are in me as like impulse choices, but I have a lot of things that I've just, I decide that I want to do and you put them on the dream sheet and you think about them and you think about them. And then one day you just act <laughs> and then you make it happen. So that's what this was. I, I want
1: to celebrate you. And let me also just say how much I can relate to that. Some of the feedback I've been given throughout my personal and professional endeavors is that I have to do a better job of bringing people along with me because I do the same thing you're talking about where I've been simmering on a decision for a really long time, like in the background, and I haven't been necessarily vocalizing it. And then I'll make a a move or make a decision that people from the outside observing are like, whoa, that chick's really impulsive. So I completely relate to what you're saying. And you know, sometimes we don't need to rationalize or explain our behavior. We can do whatever the hell we want. But I can also understand what you mean about how when you take action, sometimes it can seem abrupt to people that haven't been, um, you know, in your thought process or sort of part of your journey as you've been going. But I just really want to celebrate the fact that you guys made that happen. It sounds like it's significantly um, beneficial to you both as a couple and in your athletic endeavors and just in your just, you know, headspace and just your life enjoyment in general, like you're really thriving in Arizona in your winter. So congratulations for making that happen. We're young snowbirds. (laughs) I love it. (laughs) Um, It's a good time to be down there, by the way. Um, I'm sure you're watching what's happening back home, the front range. They're getting totally hammered. So (laughs) it's a good time to be an Arizona uh, snowbird for sure. Um, Okay. Final thoughts. I would love to just know, you know, you said you're a voracious reader. I can see that just in your writing style um, and the way that you talk, but I would just love to know what some of the more recent books are, or um, even just articles or podcasts, like what are you consuming um, material-wise these days that has really lit you up that you would recommend?
0: Oh my gosh. Okay. So I read this book a little while ago, but I was thinking about it all day yesterday because of how close we were to the border. And it was phenomenal. It's called Exit West. Oh, cool. Okay. Um, some other books that I just cannot, I cannot wait for the next Johan Hari book to come out. He wrote two books, Chasing the Scream and Lost Connections. And I think his book, Lost Connections. Um, really sums up my philosophy in life a lot. And he's a phenomenal writer. Um, and then, like, right now, I'm reading Stand. Not The Stand, but just Stand oh, yeah. by Catherine Bertine. Who Catherine
1: Bertine, has,
0: yeah. I feel like you'd know the book, or you should... I feel like that would be one that you would, you and your audience would appreciate. I'm only a few chapters in, but I'm already enjoying it, so...
1: Very cool. Talk about another advocate hard at work in in cycling yes. in, um, in, a, in a different way, perhaps, than you and I, but more on the uh, women's equality side of things, which is equally as important and super yes. inspiring. It's been really fun to watch her journey. Um, you just made a comment about that book, Lost Connections, where you said it really summarizes your philosophy on life exactly. really well. And I'm just curious, in closing if you'd be willing to share kind of what that means or what, what your, what your philosophy is.
0: I don't always believe that even that somebody with a bipolar diagnosis, I believe that a lot of things are within our control. I think that if we slowed down in life and worked on reconnecting human to human and supporting one another, um, over like consumerism, I think that we just heal a lot of problems that people are having mostly behind closed doors. Mm. Amen. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> You've got a bit of that old soul in
1: you, don't you, young person? Oh, so yeah. much of it. <laughs> no, but you said that really beautifully. I love that, how much we could heal a lot of all of us if we slowed down and focused on connection and community instead of consumption, which is a really, that's a really powerful. And and you're living that your lifestyle. You're obviously living that. So thanks for setting a positive example. Thanks for your time today. Thanks for putting your thoughts and your feelings into a book that people can enjoy and read and learn from. And for everyone listening, um, what is your website? Where's the best place to find you? Uh, It's just my name, AdelaidePer.com. Perfect. Yeah. We will have links to that and to the book and a couple of these other things that we've talked about today in the show notes. Um, Adelaide, thank you so much for your time today. I really enjoyed talking with you. I just, I find you so inspiring and, and um, I'm, I'm just thrilled that you're, you're out doing what you're doing and you are definitely making this world a better place.
0: Oh, thank you, Megan. Thank you so much for having me.
1: I you appreciate bet.
0: it. Have a great week. Good luck with your recovery. All right. You too. Bye. <laughs> Bye.
1: Thank you for listening to Maximum Enthusiasm with Megan Hopman. Subscribe, check out our blog, and learn more at MaximumEnthusiasm.com.